I consider the text of this morning from Matthew chapter 22 to be of extreme importance and wanted to follow up this evening by saying more about this righteous road that the Lord gives to His people and ask, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to the 61st chapter of Isaiah. We will read the 10th verse of Isaiah chapter 61. Let's bow in prayer before reading. Our Father, this morning you showed to us from God's Word, your own Word to us, that we, each of us, stand in need of the wedding garment or we will not be able to stand on the judgment day. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that as we unpack this text as well, that we would clearly see the connections with Matthew 22. But also, Father, as your people grow in grace, we ask that if there are those among us today, morning or evening, lost, undone, estranged from Christ, that your Holy Spirit would apply the gospel to their hearts and draw them to the Savior, that they may be saved from their sins. Praise be to your name for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone and for free, sovereign justification. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Isaiah 61, the tenth verse of this chapter. This is the word of God. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Now this is a very familiar chapter because of the opening words. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those are the words that the Lord Jesus Christ took as his text when he was in the synagogue at Nazareth. It's a wonderful chapter, but as you read along, you begin to ask some questions, and one question when you come to verse 10 is this, of whom does the writer speak in verse 10? He's been speaking so often of the Messiah. These are messianic words in the opening of chapter 61. But it is not the Messiah of whom verse 10 speaks. It is not the Messiah. Nowhere is he said to be clothed with garments of salvation. Who then, who then is this in verse 10? Well, of course, it is the people of God. It is those who have put their trust in Christ. It is you and it is me. We are the ones spoken of in verse 10. The elect praise God because we have received righteousness and because we have received salvation from our God. The Messiah brings it, not receives it. And so the elect of God, God's people, his saved ones, break out into praise I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. So this is God's people. Those who in verse 3 
are said to be clothed with the garment of praise are in this verse said to be clothed with the garment of salvation. Now the first thing I want you to notice about God's person in this verse is his great joy. Now did you notice it in the opening part of the verse? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Literally it reads, rejoicing I will rejoice. Now that's the joy of the person who has come to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. It is not a carnal joy. There are joys that are carnal. They do not last. They perish with a person. It is not a self-righteous joy. It is not self-referential, but it is a joy and salvation that comes from the hand of God. It is not a hypocritical joy, a merely external show of joy, but it is a joy that comes from the heart. The joy of which verse 10 speaks is the joy that comes from faith. It is an inward joy. It is a joy of which God's people are conscious. It is a heartfelt joy. It is a joy to use New Testament terminology that stems from the one who has been adopted into the family of God by the grace of God. For we are told that the Spirit of God and we also cry out, Abba, Father. And this word, cry out, kradzane, is usually a word that means a cry of joy. Indeed, it is an exultant joy that stems from the believer's heart when we know that we have been clothed with the garment of salvation, accepted in God's presence, adopted in his family, and that we are his for time and for eternity. It is an exultant joy. In verse 3, we are told this of what the Messiah will do, that he grants to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And this is what he has done for us as people. The oil of joy comes to broken hearts, to those who are poor in spirit, and he grants to us the garments of praise. Let me ask you, do you focus upon Christ in such a way in your Christian life that despite your circumstances and even sometimes through your tears, there's joy? Joy is not happiness. Praise God when he gives us happiness. But joy is that deep abiding recognition that the Lord is mine and I am his and that come what may, I can rejoice in him. It is the kind of expression that we find in the book of Job, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. There is such praise in my heart that come what may, no matter the circumstance, I am filled with praise to my God. Listen to the words of Thomas Watson, the old Puritan. Let me tell you, it is not a sin to rejoice, he says. You disparage your husband, Christ. When a wife is always sighing and weeping, what will others say? This woman has a bad husband. Is this the fruit of Christ's love to you to reflect dishonor upon him? A melancholy spouse saddens Christ's heart. I do not deny that Christians should grieve for sin's daily occurrence. But to be always weeping as if they mourned without hope is dishonorable to the marriage relationship. Rejoice in the Lord always, says Paul. Rejoicing brings credit to your husband. Christ loves a cheerful bride, and indeed the very purpose of God's making us sad is to make us rejoice. We sow in tears so that we may reap in joy. The excessive sadness and contrition of the godly will make others afraid to embrace Christ. They will begin to question whether there is that satisfactory joy in Christ which is claimed. 
Oh, you saints of God, do not forget consolation. Let others see that you do not repent your choice. It is joy that puts liveliness and activity into a Christian. The joy of the Lord is your strength, Nehemiah 8.10. The soul is swiftest in duty when it is carried on the wings of joy. Good statement from this old Puritan. Is that true of your life? Do you see this God as the God in whom you exult? You praise him for the good things that he has done for you. And when our focus is there, again, come what may, our hearts are filled with joy. So the first thing we notice about this man is that he has heartfelt praise and his life is filled with great joy. The second thing, what has God done for him that makes him so rejoice? Well, you find that in the middle portion of the verse. You see, he begins by saying, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Now he tells us why. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation and covered me with the robe of righteousness, which are equivalent terms. Two ways of saying the very same thing. Christ's person is excellent, is it not? This one who loved us from eternity, the second person of the Trinity who came down to save us from our sins. His blood, therefore, is precious. His sacrifice is powerful and accomplishes its purpose. It is efficacious. His righteousness is infinitely able to justify us before the throne and the bar of God. And so he is rejoicing. He is exulting in God because he is ultimately saying this. I have been given a robe that enables me to come into the presence of God and rejoice. I have been given a robe that enables me actually to come into the presence of God and to know that I have received a declaration of righteousness. What does this robe declare when one is clothed with the garments of salvation, covered with the robe of righteousness? What does this declare? It declares that you are free from your sin, that there is no sin that now attaches to you in the presence of God's judgment. It says that you, believer, are free from sin's punishment, that there will never be punishment at the bar of justice on the great day of judgment for you. Believer, it also says that your sins are blotted out, every single last one of them, As this writer Isaiah says in chapter 44, verse 22, God speaking, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And believer, it says that your sins are removed and taken away from you. Believers are under the value of the blood of Christ who annihilates our sin, who removes our guilt, And through his own power, gives to us this ultimate reality of acceptance with God. And the consequence is eternal. Now that's the efficacy of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. As we are told in the powerful words of Daniel 9, Christ's coming is to finish the transgression, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. And it is this righteousness that is given to us after the metaphor of a robe that is imputed, laid upon our shoulders. It is not in God's court as though you were righteous. I've always thought that to say that justification means as though you were righteous 
doesn't quite get at the point. The point is not simply it is as though you were righteous in God's eyes. In God's judicial system, believer, you are righteous. In his court, you are positively righteous because the righteousness of God's Son is laid to your account. Christ's righteousness was transferred to you, believer, and we are perfect in the eye of the law. Internally, I still struggle with sin. Internally, I'm a sinner. But in the eye of the law of God, I am no sinner. In the eye of the law of God, child of God, you are completely perfect, dressed in the righteous robe of Jesus Christ. And so you are clothed with a garment, a garment that is fitting to your circumstance, a garment that is suitable to your need, a garment that has come to you free of cost, You have paid nothing for it, but it cost him everything. A garment that is complete, a garment that is perfect, a garment that is everlasting, and as I said this morning, a garment that can stand the fire of the judgment of God. It is not a garment of our own. It is not of our own making. It is not a rag, and it is not a filthy garment, but a completely clean one. We read in chapter 64, verse 6, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. But that is not true of the righteousness imputed to the people of God. This is the righteousness of Christ of which he speaks. Imputed to us. Now get the expression imputed because you've heard me use it a great deal. It's the language of Paul the Apostle. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to the people of God. This is not the righteousness within us, but the righteousness that is declared concerning us. This is not my growth in grace, whereby I struggle with sin and I'm still changing and will not be completely internally morally righteous until I'm in heaven. This is God's declaration in his court of law that you are just and accepted in his sight because of the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to your account, reckoned to your account. It covers you. It shields you from the law's vengeance. No wonder then this man rejoices. And do you? Do you upon your knees before the throne of God rejoice that you are clothed with the garment of salvation and covered with the robe of righteousness? But notice thirdly in this verse, the comparisons. We find the comparisons in the latter portion of the verse. Now he has praised God because he's clothed with the garments of salvation and covered with a robe of righteousness. And now the comparisons. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. As a bridegroom is adorned, the authorized version says, with a splendid turban, such as the priest wore, you see, his best attire for his wedding day. Of course, it's compared to the priest because, as you remember, in Zechariah chapter 3, we have Joshua the high priest who was not clothed with the righteousness of Christ but with filthy garments. And those garments were removed and upon him were placed a turban on his head, and a completely, completely perfect righteousness so that the priest might represent God's people before the throne. So this bridegroom is dressed in priestly garments on his wedding day. 
But not only does it compare these garments to what the bridegroom will wear in this oriental wedding, but also it compares it to the bride's adornment, where he says, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, who takes pride in her bridal gown, pride in her accoutrements on that day, a bride adorned, made ready for her husband, as we read in chapter 62, verse 5 of Isaiah, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. As you are adorned with the righteousness of Christ, God himself rejoices over you. Revelation 21.2 says, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now this is truly a wonderful thing, is it not? That we see his great joy because of what God has done for him and clothing him with the garments of salvation and covering him with the robe of righteousness, comparing this to the best that the bridegroom would wear on his wedding day and the best that the bride would wear as she is adorned for her husband. Now I want, fourthly, to speak with you about the fruit of the imputed righteousness of Christ that is shown to us in this metaphor of the perfect robe of righteousness placed upon us. Now this is, as we said, the meaning of the wedding garment in Matthew twenty-two twelve. Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? As the authorized version put it. The church is adorned and boasts in one garment, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. My beauty are my glorious dress. So what is the fruit of this? If we are clothed in the perfection of Christ, if we are adorned with the righteousness of Jesus before the throne of God's sovereign grace, what is the fruit of this in your life? How do you take this and make use of it on Monday? What is the fruit of this in your life? Well, I'm going to give you nine fruits, nine truths. Don't worry, they're not long. Nine truths. And uh, I'm actually using the outline taken from many, many, many pages of the Puritan Thomas Brooks. So giving to Thomas Brooks, the old Puritan, all the credit for these nine as he laid them out in one of his great works. This imputed righteousness, this righteous robe that is yours before the throne of God, this imputed righteousness is enough to satisfy completely the justice of God and take off all God's judicial anger and fury. Imagine that. All of the righteous anger of God against my sin because I have been foul and I have disobeyed him and because I am corrupt. All of that anger and all of that righteous wrath is taken away by God's own provision of his own son and his righteousness that is now imputed to my account. I hope you rejoice in that that it takes off all God's judicial anger and fury, so that the justice of God now cries out, I have enough, and I want no more. I'm completely satisfied. There is nothing anyone need do to remove that wrath, because that wrath is now removed through my Son. And there I see, in that righteous robe upon you, the satisfaction of my justice and that all of my righteous anger has been paid by Jesus Christ 
who obeyed the law and shed his blood on the cross. Jesus Christ has sacrificed himself in order to satisfy the justice of God to the uttermost, so that there is not one thimbleful of wrath remaining for the people of God. That's first. Now, this imputed righteousness also takes away all of your unrighteousness. That is to say, all of your unrighteousness before the throne of God's judgment, in, before his bar, his bar of justice. The imputed righteousness takes away all your unrighteousness. It cancels every bond that was against you, every omission, every commission of sin, sins against the law, sins against the gospel, sins against one another, sins against mercy. Do you think there is more demerit? You say, Pastor, this is just incredible. To think that all of that can be removed by the righteousness of Christ. Do you think that there is more demerit in sin than there is merit in the righteousness of Christ to justify? I've asked you a question. I want you to think about it. You think it's just impossible to think that my guilt is really removed before God if your trust is in Christ. I ask you again, do you think there is more demerit in sin than merit in Christ's righteousness to forgive, to pardon, and to justify? Somewhere John Owen the Puritan says, show me the sinner that can stretch his sins to the dimensions of God's grace. Can you? You cannot. Thirdly, this imputed righteousness presents us perfectly righteous in the sight of God. Romans 10.4 says that Christ is the end of the law to those who believe. The imputed righteousness presents us perfectly righteous in the sight of God. Christ is the end of the law. The law no longer comes against you. You are perfect in God's sight. Through Christ we are as righteous as if we had satisfied the law in our own persons. As if we had, which we could never have done, as if we had satisfied the law in our own persons. He hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh, the happiness and blessedness, says Mr. Brooks. Oh, the happiness and blessedness, the safety and glory of those precious souls who in the righteousness of Jesus Christ stand perfectly righteous in the sight of God. So there you are. Morally, you and I are sinners. We struggle every day as believers in Jesus with sin. We still confess our sin because we're children that have come to a father saying, I'm sorry, but let me tell you. Before God's bar of justice, before his righteousness, you are perfect in his sight. You are as perfect as is his son because it is the perfect record of Jesus, the perfection of his righteousness that has been reckoned to your account that you have received by faith. Fourthly, this imputed righteousness will answer all fear and all doubts and all objections. 
How can it be when I know that my heart is so far from God, when I struggle with temptation and sin? How can it be that I'm accepted by God? How could this ever be? My friend, I'm glad you have the struggle. I'm glad that you do not take sin lightly. But let me tell you, you needn't fear before the throne of God when your faith is in Christ. No matter how deep the struggle, and struggle is an evidence of the work of the Spirit of God in your life, you needn't doubt. You needn't raise objections. How can I be accepted? How can a holy God receive me? He can receive you because He doesn't receive you in your righteousness. He can receive you because He receives you in the perfection of Christ's righteousness. Do you see? Do you understand? Do you begin to understand why your pastors are so concerned with denials of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone, through His imputed righteousness that we see cropping up in the church today? All of your hopes are dashed were this not true. Every one of them. For there is no hope in you and no hope in me and no hope in our internal righteousness. Our hope is only in that alien righteousness, that righteousness outside of us that has been imputed to our account by the sovereign grace of God. Well, fifthly, this imputed righteousness is your title for your heavenly inheritance so that when that day does come and you are on your deathbed and you are about to roll out into eternity, your title is clearer. Because your title is not yourself. Your title is Christ. Your title is not anything you have done. It is what He has done. It is not a debt that you pay, but the debt that He has paid. That's your title to heaven. Your certificate for blessedness. Because of the dignity of Christ's person, His righteousness is perpetual. The righteous robe that He gives you never wears out. The righteousness that is imputed to you and received by faith alone is His perfect record and will never diminish. Because of that, the imputed righteousness is your title for your heavenly inheritance. But sixthly, this imputed righteousness is the basis for quiet of conscience. When the evil one comes... And he accuses you. He's called the accuser of the brethren. And he accuses you. Look at you. Look at your filth. Look at your heart. Look at how sinful you are. Look how dirty your thought was. Look how, look, look, look at yourself. Look at yourself. No, 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 you say. I'm not going to look at myself. There's no hope there. But with the Apostle Paul in the eighth chapter, I will say, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge? That is to say an accusation. Who shall bring an accusation against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, 
or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's your answer to Satan's accusations. Who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. And so this imputed righteousness is the basis for your quiet of conscience. Absolved before God's tribunal, no accusations need be feared. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're a believer in Christ, the evil one comes with accusations and says you are a foul, foul sinner and you deserve hell. Well, the answer to that is yes, I do. But Christ doesn't. And he bore my hell for me, and I now possess the perfect robe of his righteousness. It doesn't matter what your accusations are. I'm safe. I'm sound. I'm saved. I'm justified. I'm accepted, and I'm kept for time and for eternity. And that's the good news. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Seventh, this imputed righteousness causes you to triumph in Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, Now thanks be to God who causes us to triumph in Christ. Think of Adam, created upright and yet capable of falling. Adam could lose his righteousness, and he did. Adam must keep his own righteousness, and he didn't. Adam's righteousness was that of a mere creature. We have an eternal covering and the ornaments and accoutrements of the righteousness of Jesus and Christ's work of redemption puts joy in our hearts because we now have a righteousness imputed to our account that we didn't come up with, we didn't create, we didn't make, and we don't keep. It is imputed by grace, and it is kept. You are kept in that righteousness. Until the coming of Christ. No wonder then we triumph in Christ because of the imputation of our Savior's perfection. Eighth, this imputed righteousness comforts and bears us up under the sense of the imperfection of our inherent righteousness. Now, what does Brooks mean by that? Inherent righteousness means God working within us sanctifying us, conforming us to the image of Christ within. But in none of us is it perfect. It will not be perfect until we're in heaven. Inherent righteousness is mixed up with all of the confusion of our doubts and our fears and our failures. Inherent righteousness is not the basis of justification. But Christ Jesus is called Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Jehovah Sidkenu, his righteousness now belongs to me. Jeremiah 23, 6, and this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. 
As one of the Puritans says, now remember that this imputed righteousness of Christ procures acceptance for our inherent righteousness. So there you offer a gift to God. You offer it to Him and it's tainted. You offer it with your best intentions and it's imperfect. You serve the Lord and it's mingled with sin, isn't it? Can you do anything in this world that is not tainted with sin? Can you do anything from your heart that is absolutely perfect? No, you cannot. But don't you see? He receives that service that is offered. He receives that deed that is done. He doesn't receive it in your inherent righteousness. He receives it in Christ's perfect righteousness, in His judicial righteousness. And so all of your failing, faltering service to Christ is accepted by God as if it were perfect because it is received through the righteousness of Jesus. As Calvin said, our imperfect service and efforts are accounted for righteous, they being dipped in the blood of Christ. Isn't that a beautiful expression? Your faltering, failing, yes, mingled with sin, good efforts would never be acceptable, but for this, every one of those efforts, all of that service is dipped in the blood of Christ, and that's good news. And then ninth, this imputed righteousness will give you the greatest boldness before the judgment seat. It should give you boldness now in your prayers. Do you ever have the sense when you go to God in prayer, Lord, how can I even pray because my thought life has not been what it should, because my heart is far from you, because I'm cold within? Yes, you go. You go boldly because you do not approach Him in your righteousness. You approach Him in the righteousness of Christ. And you say, change my heart, warm my heart, change my thoughts. But also, O sinner, you will one day stand before the judge, the judge of the living and the dead. And if in the imputed righteousness of Christ you stand, then you will be enabled to sing, Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolved from these I am, from fear and sin, death, and shame. This then is the fruit of the imputed righteousness of Christ. This is why it is important that we hold tenaciously to justification by grace through faith, which receives the imputed righteousness of Christ. Listen to these words of Brooks. Imputed righteousness is the same materially with that which the law requires. It is obedience to the law of God exactly and punctually performed to the very utmost iota and tittle thereof. Without the least abatement, Christ hath paid the utmost farthing. He is the fulfilling of the law for righteousness, and He hath fulfilled the law in the human nature to the intent that it might be fulfilled in the same nature to which it was at first given. And all this he hath expressly done in all their names and on all their behalfs that believe in him, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in them. Romans 8, 3 and 4. Listen to this. It is as if our dear Lord Jesus had said, O blessed Father, 
This I suffer, and this I do, to the use and stead and in the place of all of those that have ventured their souls upon me, that they may have a righteousness which they may truly call their own, and on which they may safely rest, and in which they may forever glory. Now it will never stand with the unspotted holiness, justice, and righteousness of God to reject this righteousness of His Son, or that plea that is bottomed upon it. Oh, the matchless happiness of believers who have so fair, so full, and so noble a plea to make in the great day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You will not plead my own righteousness, my goodness, my service, my works. As Brooks says, it will never stand with the unspotted holiness, justice, and righteousness of God to reject this righteousness of His Son or that plea that is bottomed upon it. We have one plea, and that plea is Jesus, blood, and righteousness, is mine. He died for me. I've received it by faith. And because of that, I can stand in that great day. Now, there may be someone here in this Sunday evening service that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And as his ambassador, as Christ's ambassador, I stand before you and I say, if you died tonight and you stood before your judge, and you are outside of Christ, you would have nothing to plead, nothing whatsoever. You need Jesus. You need Christ. You come to Christ. Come by faith. Throw away all of those supposed works of your own. Trust in Christ alone and come dressed in the perfection of the righteousness of Christ. Stand before Him, reconciled, because Jesus died for sinners. May the Lord bless this preaching of his word.